Well, Charles Haddon Spurgeon is a 19th century Baptist minister, served at the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London for 38 years. He had a prolific ministry. His sermons were translated and transcribed, sent all around the world. And he added to that other writings, devotionals, commentaries, such that there's more material in print by Spurgeon than any other Christian author, dead or alive. Spurgeon was also a gifted preacher in person, so much so that he's known as the Prince of Preachers. His services regularly drew thousands of people and thousands more came to salvation under his ministry. His preaching had truly a global impact and legacy. And so how did he do it? What was the secret to his success? If you were to ask Spurgeon himself, he wouldn't take credit. He believed God's power was responsible for his ministry from his end that involved the preaching of the word. He knew that God placed his power to transform people in the word. So he just preached the word. And on the receiving end, he knew that power came through prayer. Spurgeon firmly believed his ministry had such an effect because his people regularly prayed on behalf of him and that pulpit. There's a story of five young college students who went to London to visit Spurgeon's church here and preach. They went early and they were greeted by a man at the door. He invited them in. The man asked them, would you like to see the heating plant of this church? Back then, buildings were powered and heated by a boiler room tucked away in the basement. The students were not that interested because it was a hot day in July, but they didn't want to be rude, so they consented. They were taken down a stairway, and their guide opened up a door, and inside, he showed them a room filled with 700 people who were on their knees praying on behalf of the service that was about to begin in the auditorium above. And he said, this is our boiler room. And the gentleman then closed the door and introduced himself as none other than Charles Spurgeon. And whether that story is legend or true, we don't know for sure. But we do know that Spurgeon's boiler room was a real thing. It was a real part of that ministry. Hundreds of church members really did come to pray each week before and even during the service, praying for the preaching going on above them, that God would save and sanctify many people through his word. And just as actual boiler rooms powered everything going on in in the building above them back then, Spurgeon referred to the prayers of his people as the source of spiritual power behind his ministry. Later, Spurgeon told some fellow pastors, quote, Brethren, we shall never see much change for the better in our churches in general till the prayer meeting occupies a higher place in the esteem of Christians, end quote. It's hard to disagree with that statement. And prayer desperately needs to occupy a greater place in the lives of individual Christians and entire churches. And with Spurgeon in mind, you know, though not all pastors will enjoy such notoriety and, and recognition, they're all tasked with the same mission, preach the word, to shepherd their flock. That mission is entirely dependent, though, on God's power for success. No one is sufficient for these things on his own. This is why all pastors and ministers likewise need the prayers of their people. Every church needs a boiler room where 
Faithful saints gather to propel the ministry forward through prayer. That goes for me. You know, my preaching will fall on deaf ears if it's not for the Spirit of God. We don't directly control the Spirit, but God himself invites us to pray accordingly, to pray his revealed will, to pray that his Spirit would move in the hearts of those who hear to be saved to be sanctified. So you too need to be in prayer for, for me and for the ministry of this pulpit that God would use it. That also goes for all past and future pastors you might have. With that in mind, you guys know we're in the time of a pastoral transition here at this church. A couple weeks ago, we said goodbye to our associate pastor, Oliver Jones, who is taking a church plant in his hometown And sometime soon, Lord willing, we'll be joined by a new associate pastor coming to minister to us and to our youth. But that transition got me thinking, you know, what's the best way a church can serve a faithful pastor who must depart? And what's the best way a church can serve a new pastor who comes in his stead? Well, the answer is one and the same. It's to pray for them. It is the best way You can serve them. All elders, pastors, missionaries, all who minister the gospel rely on the prayer of their people. Last time we were together, I laid that case out for you. We, of course, should be praying for everyone in the church, but since pastors face greater responsibility, greater stakes, greater opposition, well, it reasons they could use greater prayer. And that's modeled in scripture as well. The Apostle Paul is often praying for others in his letters, but every so often he turns the tables and he asks prayer for himself and his gospel partners. He firmly believed those who minister the gospel depend on the prayer of God's people for results. And the same is true today. So as we saw one of our pastors depart and another soon to come, I felt compelled to exhort the church to keep them in prayer. It's the best way. You can bless them. You can honor them. You can support them to to actually pray for them. So really the next question is just how? How should you pray for them? How is a church to pray for its pastors and leaders biblically? That's an intriguing question. I found myself studying scriptures and studying uh, Paul's personal prayer requests in particular to answer that question. And from that study, I found myself at least 15 ways the church should be praying for its pastors. And I want to share that study with you, with the prayer that you would take it to heart. And if you haven't already, you would earnestly commit to keeping your pastors in your prayers. Last time we were together, we covered reasons one through seven. And time really doesn't afford us any sort of a recap. So if you missed it, that message is online. You can get part one. For now, we're picking up where we left off to finish this list, this how-to. How to pray for your pastors. In 15 ways, but now we're we're starting with number eight. We're going to pick up and keep going. That's our, our goal for this morning. So let's do that. How to pray for your pastors. And picking up number eight. Physical deliverance. Number eight, physical deliverance. You can pray for their physical deliverance. When you look at the Apostle Paul's prayer requests, as you might expect, most of them 
our gospel-centered, ministry-focused, spiritually-minded. He's mostly asking for prayer for the gospel and all things related to the gospel. And we saw that last time. Spiritual matters dominate his thinking. That does not mean Paul was entirely unconcerned for physical matters or practical matters. And several times, actually, Paul asks for prayer for his physical needs. There's always been those in the church who have emphasized the spiritual matters or or spiritual matters to the complete neglect of physical matters. To them, the, the physical world doesn't matter. The body doesn't matter. Health doesn't matter. Daily bread doesn't matter. The only thing that's of consequence are are matters of the spirit. It is true that to God, issues of heart, mind, and soul matter most. And that's why scripture is mostly filled with spiritual truth. It's not God didn't give us a book on biology or physiology. He mostly gave us spiritual truth. But this is not meant to be taken to the neglect of physical matters. God made us physical creatures with physical needs. It's not wrong to be concerned with such things. God cares about us, body and soul. He cares about our lives and all of our needs. In fact, God wants you to go to him for all your needs in this life, as mundane as they might be. Because God is glorified when you express your complete and total dependence on him as your heavenly father. So whether it's a prayer for daily bread or a prayer to just find no cavities when you go to the dentist or a prayer for a safe flight. You know, even though these, these are far from eternal concerns, God delights when we depend on him for all things. So ask away, make your requests known to God. He cares about your life. And this explains why several times we find the Apostle Paul soliciting prayer for his physical needs. Now, when it comes to the example of Paul, though, most of the times he's actually focusing on physical deliverance. He asks several times specifically about physical deliverance. For example, I'll read to you Romans 15, covering a lot of ground. So if you want to follow along in your Bible, do so. You'll have to move fast. Romans 15 30 through 32. Paul says, I urge you, brethren, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God for me. He says that I might be rescued from those who are disobedient in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may prove acceptable to the saints, so that I may come to you in joy by the will of God and find refreshing rest in your company. You know, we learn here, Paul wanted to go to Rome, but he had to go to Jerusalem first. And he knew that wicked men were waiting for him there. So he's asking here for prayer for physical deliverance. He might be rescued from those who are disobedient in Judea, that he might not be prevented from thereafter going to the Romans. That prayer was answered in a manner of speaking. The mob did go after Paul when he was in Jerusalem. And they almost got him, but he was delivered from death. A deliverance came as he appealed to Caesar. And so off to Rome he went as a prisoner to stand appeal. That's not how Paul imagined he would finally get to Rome. But but there he was. 
you know, moving on during his first Roman imprisonment, he again asks for prayer for physical deliverance. You think of Philemon 22, where Paul writes, he says to them at the end, at the same time, also prepare me a lodging for I hope that through your prayers, I will be given to you. Now, Paul's writing that during his first Roman imprisonment. He's so hopeful he's going to be released that he says, hey, prepare a lodging for me. And he's so hopeful, though, his hope is based on their prayers, that through their prayers, he'll be delivered. He'll be given to them where he can visit them. His hope comes through their prayers. Same as Philippians 1.19, which Paul also writes from this imprisonment. He trusts that he will be delivered to them also. How? He says there, through the prayers of the church and the provision of the spirit of Jesus Christ. He knows it's only going to be that the spirit of God that will lead to his deliverance. But that's why he's telling them to pray. Pray for that. There are other examples of Paul seeking prayer for physical deliverance. You can listen to 2 Thessalonians 3. One through two. He says, finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord will spread rapidly and be glorified, just as it did also with you, and that we will be rescued from perverse and evil men, for not all have faith. You know, there are some who so opposed Paul preaching Christ that his life was in danger. This is reminiscent of 2 Corinthians 1. You know, Paul relates there was a time, we don't know actually historically what this was, but he relates there's a time where his opponents, they brought him essentially to the edge of the cliff because of his ministry. They essentially had him you know, this close to death. They, they were going to kill him and he thought he was going to die. But God miraculously delivered them. But he knew it probably wasn't going to be the last time wicked men would oppose him and even seek his death just for preaching Christ. But this is why he calls on God's people to, to pray for him. Like he says in 2 Corinthians 1, verses 10 and 11, he says, God will yet deliver us, you also joining and helping us through your prayers, so that may, thanks may be given by many persons in our behalf for the favor bestowed on us through the prayers of many. Now, already, that's, that's five different passages where Paul seeks prayer for his physical deliverance. He doesn't know God's will. He does not know if it's God's will for him to keep living or to go to heaven. Nor do we. That, that's not revealed until it happens. But in that case, it's not wrong to simply pray your will or as Philippians 4, 6 would say, just let your requests be made known to God. And of course, we always submit our will to God's will. And so we'll add to that, yet not my will be done, but your will be done. But as we don't know that will in, in, in precision, just let your request be made known to God. Again, this is the type of prayerful dependence that glorifies God and sanctifies us. And you realize this type of prayer is itself an act of worship. That's why it's so valuable. Just the, the, the act of coming to God, trusting him in your request, just letting your request known to him, depending on him. That's an act of faith itself. 
the very act is, 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 can only come from one who believes there's a God who hears, who answers, who's good. You're going to him in faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. A prayer is the quintessential act of faith. And so why it's, it's always an act of worship. This is what the church needs to be engaged in for their own worship, but also on behalf of all who are in peril, especially pastors. So one more special example here. This time comes from Peter in Acts 12. We learn that Herod Agrippa was starting to kill Christians. And he first had James, the brother of John, executed. He was the first apostle to be martyred. Then Herod set his sights next on Peter. He had Peter arrested and imprisoned, and he was going to be executed the next day. But Acts 12.5 says, So Peter was kept in the prison, but prayer for him was being made fervently by the church to God. Acts 12.5. You know, Herod, Herod didn't count on that. And right after that, you can read for yourself, it shows how God sent an angel to miraculously deliver Peter from prison and from execution. It's not every day that your pastors or leaders will face great peril, but when they do, well, pray. Pray fervently. Will God deliver them or not? We don't know. Now, at some point, it was not God's will for Paul to be delivered. He was executed. And later, it was not God's will for Peter to be delivered. He too was executed. But even still, as the church gathers to pray for them, it's an act of worship. At this point, it's not for us to, to spend time to figure out whether or not prayer actually changes God. For now, just simply trust him. Participate in his plans. What he tells you to do and depend on him in prayer. And do so especially on behalf of pastors. Praying for all forms of physical deliverance. That they might continue ministering. As long as God wills. From disease to danger. From persecution to opposition. And I pray that, that God's supernatural protection would be over them. That, that their gospel witness would not go out. Now God still delivers Supernaturally, but, but only those who join in prayer get, get to share in that, that special glory, that joy, and that thanksgiving when that deliverance comes. So pray for their physical deliverance. Number nine, now pray for their spiritual deliverance. Spiritual deliverance. Last time I alluded to this request, but here I just want to make it explicit. Spiritual deliverance is needed too. I mentioned how pastors have bigger targets on their back. They face greater opposition. It comes with the territory of all leadership. You're going to have a bigger target on you. You take out the leader, you strike a huge blow to all who follow. The world knows this. So they will focus their oppression and opposition on those who lead. Leaders of the church strike the head to kill the body. But more importantly, the enemy of our souls knows this. Satan and all the the fallen angels who follow him. You know, you see all the the darkness and evil spreading in the world today. It's all the result of a grand conspiracy. 
But the one responsible is not who you think. It's, it's not a person. It's not a government. It's not a, a room of secret power brokers. It's the devil. He's continually conspiring against God and his people. Just like Ephesians 6, 11 and 12 says, it tells us to put on the full armor of God so that you'll be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Similarly, Paul tells the Corinthians to, to let forgiveness trump retribution in their midst. And he says so, 2 Corinthians 2.11, so that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. And Satan's always at work to oppose God's people. And he knows one of the oldest strategies in the book, divide and conquer. Now, as Paul is concerned for the Corinthians, that they would not be divided and therefore conquered by Satan's schemes. So, but look, Satan knows it works. He will happily deceive and tempt people to be self-willed, self-centered, selfish. Because he knows that when a people puts self-will over God's will, it's just a matter of time before they divide. And Satan also knows another ancient strategy, though. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. He knows that if he can take down pastors or leaders who are often kind of like the unifying glue of a local church, the rest will go down. Their witness will fade. Their effectiveness will diminish as the church suffers under broken leadership. Why do you think Satan targeted Peter on the night of Christ's death? He put... Peter in his sights more than the others. Why? Because he knew Jesus was grooming Peter to be a leader among leaders. You take out Peter, the, the rest will, will follow too. Hence, Luke twenty two thirty one. Jesus said to him, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. Do you think Satan and his forces still do this? That strategy has not changed because it it works. They're going to go after the leaders of the church with temptation and deception, waging a war of sin and lies. But the solution here is for leaders to just stand firm in the truth. That's how you wage a, a truth war. You just stand firm in the truth. Put on the armor of God, remaining firm in faith and holy in character. And for that However, they they need your prayer. For that spiritual warfare, they need your prayer. This is why we find Jesus himself praying for Peter. Right? Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, once you've turned again, strengthen your brothers. You know, in this case, Peter would stumble, but not fatally. He was preserved through prayer. And pastors today need the same intercession. They've got to keep watch of their own souls. Like Jesus told Peter later that night, keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. But pastors need the prayers of their people on their behalf 
as well. I mean, like you care for the Lord, his glory, his name, his church, his gospel. The last thing you want to see is, is his name slandered or, or the gospel witness diminished. That happens when pastors go down. So pray for them. Pray diligently that God would help them overcome temptation. Remain steadfast in the faith and just not fall prey to the schemes of the devil. Pray that for yourself. We pray that for your pastors. Moving on, number 10. The 10th way you can be praying for your pastors. Growth in wisdom. Growth in wisdom. The, the next three we'll cover here are all going to focus on praying for your pastor's growth. Here, growth in wisdom. In pastoral ministry, a large degree of knowledge is required. Specifically, knowledge of God's word. In leading and feeding the people the word of God. You've got to know it, read it, study it, understand it. And today we have seminaries that aid in this endeavor. They're able to, to educate men at an accelerated rate, such that you might have a young pastor who already knows vastly more about the scriptures than many aged Christians. However, you know, in pastoral ministry, knowledge is not everything, and it is not enough. That, that knowledge must be appropriately and skillfully applied. The word must be divided and delivered in the right way, at the right time, in the right manner. And all that requires not knowledge, but wisdom. Wisdom is knowledge applied. Wisdom is the ability to take God's word, which is clear, and then apply it to all the complexities of life, which are not clear. And life is ambiguous and difficult, and it takes a wise man or woman of God to navigate that fog. You know, sometimes it's like you're sailing an open ocean. It's crystal clear. The skies are blue. You can see exactly where you need to go. You know exactly what to do and where to go. But other times, it's like you're sailing through this dense fog. You can't see anything. You have no idea where to go or what to do. And in such a time, it takes a seasoned, wise captain to navigate through that type of fog. Every believer needs wisdom to do that for their own life. But a pastor who, who helms a, a local church, you know, full of people, a ship full of people, he better have such wisdom to navigate the foggy times. Where does this wisdom come from? It comes from God. No one is born with such wisdom. Proverbs twenty two fifteen to the contrary says, foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. Later, all are able to acquire knowledge by study and by learning, but that's not how you get wisdom. It comes by the Spirit of God, at least the wisdom we're talking about. And this is why we're told to pray for it. James 1, 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach. And it will be given to him. This type of spiritual wisdom we're talking about. It's something that comes from God. I mean after all the leader. He's just trying to do 
what God wants, or hopefully at least. He's just trying to lead the people according to the will of God. Sometimes, though, that, that will is not spelled out in Scripture, especially as it's applied to modern life. But wisdom seeks the mind of God just to get it right. And look, that's, that's dependent on prayer. That's something you need to pray for. You know, recall Solomon. He'd become king. His father, David, the great King David, had just died. So now Solomon, he's king of all Israel. But he confessed to God in prayer. He says to God, you know, I am but a little child. So he's basically like, what am I supposed to do here? Like, how on earth am I supposed to lead this whole people? But he prays, 1 Kings 3, verse 9. He says, so give your servant an understanding heart to judge your people, to discern between good and evil. That's what he prays. Essentially, prays for wisdom. He didn't ask for riches, honor, long life, or the life of his enemies, it says in the text. But he asked for wisdom and knowledge, for discernment to understand justice, that he might rule over God's people. And read the text. God himself commends Solomon for this prayer. And this is what every leader needs most, more than honor or power or riches. He needs a spirit of wisdom to lead God's people. You know, pastors, even if they're at the helm of a small ship, a little skiff, they still need God's wisdom to lead and oversee, make decisions. Decisions that will affect like the real lives of real people sometimes. So that the least thing you can do for them is to pray for them. Maybe you're not in the position at, at the, the steering wheel of the ship. At the very least, you should probably pray for the, the guy who is. And with some, some regularity, pray that God would continually supply your pastors and leaders with the spirit of wisdom. And God is happy to give to all who ask. Number 11, growth in godliness, growth in wisdom. And now another way to grow, growth in godliness. This is another way pastors need to grow. It's another way then you can pray for them. I trust you've learned that just because a guy graduates from seminary, that doesn't mean he's arrived. Anyway, it can be kind of discouraging that you spend several years going through seminary, learning so much. Finally, you finish, cross that finish line, you graduate, only to realize like you're still pretty much near the bottom of the ministry mountain. You're just getting started. You've only made it to base camp number one. You still have a long way to go to the top. That's okay, though. God is faithful to grow all of his people. And one main way all of us need to keep growing, pastors included, is in godliness. Now, don't get me wrong. Pastors and elders must possess a certain proven character before they begin serving. We saw last time, and as Rod read this morning, they need to have an above-reproach character per the requirements of 1 Timothy 3. It doesn't mean they've arrived or they're sinless, but they have displayed an advancement in maturity and Christ-likeness. With that said, pastors are still mere men. They're still sinners, which means they're still progressing in their own Christ-likeness. 
they need to keep growing. And well, you should pray for that. This new verse, a key verse on spiritual growth. 2 Peter 1, 5 through 8. 2 Peter 1, 5, he says, Now for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence. And in your moral excellence, knowledge. And in your knowledge, self-control. And your self-control, perseverance. And your perseverance, godliness. And your godliness, brotherly kindness. And your brotherly kindness, love. He says, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see that the fruitful, useful Christian is not the one who has arrived, who's perfect. We know in this life that that's not going to happen. But he's the one who possesses and is increasing in this type of godly character. You know, the vessel God wants to use the most for his work is the clean vessel, the holy vessel. And say you got to do some sweeping around your house. You got two brooms in the garage. The handle of one is covered in mud and dirt and mildew. The other handle is pristine. It looks brand new. So which broom are you going to choose to do your sweeping that day? Like, well, I imagine the new one. It's the same with God. He aims to use clean, holy servants for his work. Well, look, pray for your pastors then. Pray they remain and, and even grow in this godly character. They might be more effectively used by God. This is doubly important because pastors and elders are to be examples for the flock. First Peter 5.3 says, they're to, to tangibly lead the way, showing what it looks like to pursue Christ in their day and age. If you want to see a whole church grow in Christ-likeness, well, pray that your pastors would grow in Christ-likeness. It's very rare that a congregation will rise above the pastor in, large, in a large manner. You pray that he becomes more like Christ, and you might see a whole church become more like Christ. Number 12, now growth in gifting. Growth in gifting. As we're thinking about ways to pray for your pastor to grow, here's the third one, growth in gifting. It's very easy to complain about leaders. And the church is not immune to this type of mob mentality. Look at Old Testament Israel. And they're constantly grumbling and complaining about the leadership of Moses. And sometimes you may have legitimate concerns with leaders, and there is a right and righteous way to address those. Most times, though, people are are just unrighteously grumbling and complaining. The mob is often fickle, being led by the whims of personal preference and peer pressure, and that, that doesn't please the Lord, and it certainly doesn't help that leader grow. Now, as a quick side note, I think the best way to stop people complaining about their leaders is just to make them lead for a day. This could be in any field, any enterprise. You know, unfortunately, in the church, I don't think we can do that. The church might suffer irreparable harm. But I'll tell you what, you try preaching once, you try counseling once, you try making big decisions and see how quickly people criticize you and just eat you alive. But I knew another once where the time came for him to, to preach a full-fledged Sunday morning sermon in front of the whole congregation, the first time 
he had done that. He got his first taste of the time it takes to prepare, the, the consuming pressure of the moment, the feeling of all eyes being on you. He also got his first taste of critique because everyone's a critic. And needless to say, he, he never complained about the preacher after that point. I tell you what, though, this is not to say pastors and leaders are above critique. They're not. Sometimes they, they really do need to grow in their teaching and preaching skills. Sometimes they need to grow in their decision-making ability or their, their bedside manner in dealing with people. Pastors need people in their lives who can deliver to them necessary constructive criticism, critique, feedback. That They need people like that. For the part of the whole church, though, and if you have a pastor who needs to grow in his gifting and his ability, one thing you can do, one thing you should do before complaining is praying, right? Pray for him. Now, I should mention, this, this is not directed at this church. You guys have been so gracious with me, really, all these years. I mean that. I'm very thankful for that. But hey, keep praying for me, too. Pray that I continue to grow in my abilities, we're talking about the abilities of a pastor. We're talking about spiritual gifts. You know, the one skill or gifting that the pastor is required to have is the ability to teach, 1 Timothy 3.2. And the ability to teach God's word is a gift that comes from God. 1 Peter 4.10-11, he says, As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold, grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies. You see, in general, there are speaking gifts. There are serving gifts. Pastors are those who have a speaking gift. They're called to use that then to teach, to preach. A lot goes into that, you know, especially that the teaching office of the pastor. It may be the result of God's gifting, but that doesn't mean it's outworking is just automatic. Spiritual gifts, as you may not know, they can be either neglected or fostered. God supplies us his grace and gifting, but then he expects us to work diligently to employ it and even see that, that gifting grow. And this is true for pastors as well. There is a skill involved in the work of the ministry. And it needs to grow. I want to read again a key verse from last time when it comes to pastoral ministry. 1 Timothy 4, 14 through 16. A key verse. 1 Timothy 4, 14 through 16, where Paul says to young Timothy, he says, do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was bestowed on you through prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands by the presbytery. He says, Take pains with these things. Be absorbed in them so that your progress will be evident to all. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things, for as you do this, you will ensure salvation for yourself and for those who hear you. See, this is a call not to neglect one's spiritual gift here for the pastor, but to foster it to be absorbed in it, to persevere in it. It's not automatic. Okay, you're gifted, so now it just, it all, it all comes natural, right? Well, 
There's a part where that's true, but there's a part where, okay, now you need to, to work at it. And, and Paul assures him this will lead to the growth and salvation of himself and all those in his flock. Look, I know what you want. You just want a perfect pastor. One who diligently feeds the flock accurately, faithfully, who's gentle, kind, loving, yet also wise, bold, knowledgeable. Basically, you want him to be just like Christ. And that's good. I hope you understand, though, you're not going to get Christ now, at least not yet, not in this age. For now, you're just stuck with an under-shepherd of Christ. But you can be faithful and supportive to pray for him to grow in his spiritual gifting and ability. A growth in wisdom, growth in godliness, growth in gifting. Pastors are still men in progress. No one is adequate for the work of the ministry. Only God's grace makes us adequate. So you just be praying that God's grace would abound more and more in their lives. Well, we got to finish up here. A couple more. Number 13, steadfast love for family. Steadfast love for family. We've already covered a lot of ground on how to be praying for your pastors. There's three more to go. They're all concerned now with love. We're not going to finish off the list with the pastor's love. He has to be a man characterized by love, and he has to love the right things, as God defines First, here, he must abound in love for his family. That's something God requires of all husbands, right? In Ephesians 5.25, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And for the pastor, called to be above reproach, loving his wife as Christ loved the church is, is all the more critical. He cannot forsake that sacred commission. It's just it's part of his qualifications, as we read First Timothy 3 this morning. You know, an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, that means a one woman, a faithful man. He says in verse 4, he must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? He says, you know, a Christ-like love of, of wife and children paired with biblical leadership must characterize the man of God. I mean, he can't even get out of the dugout and step onto plate in ministry if these aren't already in place. Like, don't even step up to plate if, if, if these aren't in place. Again, it's not calling for the perfect father, the perfect husband, just one who's faithful and godly. And loving. And this is so critical, you should probably pray for it. In ministry, families face a lot of external pressure. The pastor will bear the brunt of that. You can picture a man with a rope tied around him. And his wife and kids are, are tugging on that rope. They, they want him. They want his time. They want his presence. Naturally. But for the pastor, it's like there's a hundred other ropes tied around him with a hundred other people you know, pulling tugging at him. They want his time, his presence, his, his person. That's appropriate. Again, that, that comes with the territory of ministry. That's it's part, of the, part of the plan. Ministry families have to accept that. 
But the pastor must keep his priorities straight. He can never neglect the rope of his family. Those tugs have to always get answered. You know, the challenge is when the other hundred tugs feel stronger. But nevertheless, you can support pastors by praying for them that, that they would keep their priorities straight. They need to make certain they love first their wife and children above the church. Because a man who forsakes his family is literally disqualified from shepherding the church of God. Now again, this doesn't mean the pastor should neglect love for the church or that he should sever the ropes of all the other people in the church who who need his time. No, he's got to find that balance where he is faithfully loving his family, yet also faithfully loving the church. And you should pray for that too. So number 14, steadfast love for the church. Number 14, steadfast love for the church. And you don't want a pastor who's fallen out of love with the church. The church is not a building or program, but a people. And the people must compel a large part of his service. He has to share the heart of Christ who, when he saw the crowd, felt compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. You know, best he can, the pastor must be people-driven, not task-driven, like preaching, not not learning-driven, like studying theology, not paycheck-driven, like any other job. Even though these things are good, he must, though, primarily be people-driven. The subject of his ministry is not books, it's people, souls, those who need to know and follow Christ. And if a pastor loses sight of that love for lost souls and, and struggling sheep, his ministry will go way off course. Hebrews thirteen seventeen says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. You know, pastors are tasked as under shepherds to keep watch over Christ's sheep while he is away. And keeping watch over souls can be hard work. It's a labor of love. Love has to be there because oftentimes, you know, that sheep can be difficult. They're known to wander. They don't always listen. They get into trouble. And sheep sometimes bite. They can be known to bite the hand that feeds them. They, they charge against one who's, who's shepherded them for, for decades. In a moment's notice, the sheep can, can turn on the shepherd. Nevertheless, the shepherd must be faithful to, to love them and have compassion on them, realizing he's just a sheep too. But without such love for the flock, though, you know, all other pastoral duties really just become hollow. They don't mean a whole lot if they're not driven by love. So you need to pray, especially that the pastor would retain this love. Pray that he would just maintain an unconditional love for the church. Just how the Lord set his love on us without condition. And we are called to love one another in the same way. And the pastor especially. Well, lastly now. We can finish, finally, this is a long list of a number 15 
which is steadfast love for Christ. Steadfast love for Christ. You know, love for his family, that matters. That's a huge deal. And love for the church, that matters too. That's, that's another huge deal. But those are both just completely dwarfed by love for Christ and the need for the pastor to love Christ. It matters more than all. And this is a fitting place to end. I mean, what could be more fatal to a pastor, a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ, than to lose his first love? And that love runs deeper than church or family. It's his love for, for God, creator, savior, redeemer. That consuming love of Christ, it's meant to be like the North Star. It's constantly guiding the pastor to just always do what is right in God's eyes. If he loses that love, he will quickly get lost and lose his way. And that's the problem the Lord had with the church of Ephesus in Revelation 2. They were fine with theology. He commends them for their learning. But Jesus said to them, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. And to lose that love means just one thing. It's been replaced by something else. The pastor has been bewitched, deceived in his heart to let something else get in there and dethrone Christ. That can happen to any one of us who lets his guard down, allowing that the love of the world to flood back in. Jesus himself warned, Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one, despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. But wealth is not the only adulteress the pastor can flirt with. It can be many other things, really anything that steals his main affection away from the Lord. You have to be on guard for Instead, he must be known by this, like Jesus said later in Matthew 6, 33. Seek first his kingdom, his righteousness. In life, as you know, it's long, hard, difficult. It's filled with trouble and trials. And pastors are not immune to that. They can be worn down over time. Tempted, just take a break. Take your foot off the gas. Just coast through life problem is that's not really part of the job description of the ministry. They too need to run the race with endurance. And all the more because they're running out in front. They're pace setters. So if they slow down, if they take a break, or if they quit, what do you think will happen to all the people who were following them? Again, like we said, the stakes are high. So, well, pray for your pastor's steadfast love of Christ. That is his lifeline. And thankfully, though, what keeps all of us going is Christ himself. Our faith is not in a thing, but in a person, a living Savior, the one who died for us, paid for our sins, rose on the third day, and gave us complete forgiveness and everlasting life. And so now we love him because he first loved us. His love it was a saving, transforming love that calls out our love for him in return. And really, it's, it's his overwhelming love for us that sustains us and our love as well. Pastors 
need to be reminded of this just as much. They too, and above all, need to drink deeply from the well of Christ and often finding refreshing for their own souls. So do you want to pray for your pastors? I hope over these couple messages, you've been convicted, a sanctified conviction, feeling the need to, if you haven't already, start praying regularly and faithfully praying for your pastors, among many other things, but include in that list a prayer for your pastors, elders, missionaries, just all who minister the gospel. How? There are many ways you can and should pray for them. We've covered them in a couple messages. Keep them all in mind, but we can leave and say that above all, you pray that they too would lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles them, and that they too would run with endurance the race that's set before them, fixing their eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of their faith. Well, let's have a, a time of prayer right now. Father in heaven, we, we come to you in prayer. We, we can thank you for the privilege of prayer, that you, you call us, you beckon us to, to cry out to you, to let our requests be made known, to thank you and to praise you. This is, this is for us a meaningful act of worship to come before our Father who is in heaven, who hears and wants us to go to him. And Lord, you call us to pray for many things. We need to be praying depending on you for many things. We've learned though this morning that, that praying for our pastors, elders, missionaries, leaders, is so critical. Convict us. Let that holy conviction run deep and change us that this becomes a part of our life. We continue to pray for Oliver Jones, our own faithful associate pastor who departed to take a church plant. We include now a prayer for Christopher Johnson, a new youth and associate pastor who will be joining us. Many other pastors and elders and missionaries who have crossed our paths, we pray for all of these men that they too would be just faithful men of God. Keep them going above reproach. Deliver them physically and spiritually. Grow them in in wisdom and discernment to know how to lead your people, especially in these times, that is all the more important. Paired with the growth in godliness, growth in love, love for family, for Christ, for the church. There's a high standard. Just to follow Christ, there's a high standard. But to to humbly lead others to follow Christ, there's an even higher standard, a higher calling. No one's sufficient. Only by your grace, Lord, can any of us stand before you and lead others. So we just pray for your grace, your abounding grace for all the pastors we know and love. And I pray that for myself as well. May, you, may your grace be with me and to lead this people. We thank you because we know your grace is sufficient. We can rest confident in that and keep going. Bless us in Christ's name we pray. Amen.